This season, we'll be further exploring each topic, hanging out with experts and enthusiasts of all kinds for more strange stories, social commentary, and the myths that make America tick. I'm your host, Chelsea Weber-Smith. Mara Wilson is a writer, actor, and the former star of the 1996 classic movie Matilda. In her poignant memoir, Where Am I Now? True Stories of Girlhood and Accidental Fame, Mara shares her relationship to the character that the public sometimes still sees her as and the long-term personal project of finding her own self. For this episode, we're talking about the dramaturgy of living, who we are offstage, the characters we all play on stage, and for Mara, the pressure of the perfectionism that comes from yet another mask. We'll also talk about mental health, queerness, and finding oneself among those who truly embrace the performance. We are so excited. Our child selves are so excited and our adult selves are so excited to welcome Mara Wilson. Mara, thank you for coming on the show. Thank you so much. I'm a big fan. Oh, this is uh, so exciting. And we also have Miranda Zickler, our producer, who's going to pop in on this episode. Hey, everybody. I'll be here for fact checks and general merriment. (laughs) Thank you. Dramaturgy, essentially. Yes, I'm the uh, the stage manager here. <laughs> the cast is all here, cast and crew. Um, okay, well, uh, I just finished your book. Uh, it's called Where Am I Now? Yeah, the stories of girlhood and accidental fame. And uh, I know Miranda read it years ago, right when it came out, and has been rereading it. And we're just constantly talking about it. And as I said before we started recording, I was going on my. Uh, perfunctory walk through the woods in the morning and just crying my eyes out and and having lots of feelings. So um, yeah, it's, it's been uh, getting to know you lately in that way has been really, uh, really, really cool. Thank you. Thank you so much. I mean, I've definitely had, you know, cries in the woods before. So I'm, I'm, I'm very glad that I can offer that catharsis <laughs> to another person. It's like when uh, Milhouse says, this is where I go to cry and he takes part. <laughs> yes, the exactly. Cave. Exactly. <laughs> okay. Exactly. Um, so we're going to dive right into Matilda, which I'm sure is nothing new for you to be the first thing we talk about. But uh, I want to talk about in this, this way that you talk about it in, in your book. And it's such a like a beautiful and complicated relationship. And and in the book, you actually are writing a letter to her. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think even now people see you as this character. It is sort of a defining part of who you are, or at least who people see you as. And this character was so revolutionary and so important to so many kids. Such an empowering character. Matilda is so many things all at once and such a nuanced, complicated, sort of adult character that we just didn't really get when we were kids. Um, And I know you had that experience in your excitement at playing this character. But then on the other side, you have had this character follow you through your life in ways that are really strange. Um, And in our Influencers episode, we talk about the dramaturgy uh, in sociology. So kind of in our own lives, like the theater, we have different masks we put on, whether we're on stage or off stage. But then you have a third one 
you have a character persona and that's not something a lot of people have. So <laughs> I was wondering if you would be willing to sort of talk the way you do a little bit in your book about Matilda and your relationship to her. I feel like in a way I was embodying an archetype kind of, or, or this, this, you know, it, it felt like, it felt like playing a, an historical character or, or something like that. Like it felt to me like she existed uh, because I think that she is this sort of archetype that, that a lot of people kind of found in their lives and, and helped them out a lot. I think that, you know, one of the reasons that my mother loved that book so much was because she was a child who uh, kind of had to take care of herself uh, the way that she grew up and had to take care of her younger siblings. And she was very, very academic and kind of found her escape through that. And I think that that's why she liked Matilda is, is because she was a strong and powerful person. And my mother's values were always being very strong and always learning and, you know, intelligence and strength and learning and strength. Those were really her key values. So I feel like I really loved that, but I never really felt like I was her because I knew, you know, all my own shortcomings. I knew all of my own issues and things like that. And, and in a way, it was a little bit like, uh, you know, I have three older brothers and they're all uh, they're very, very smart and uh, very funny and always had a lot of friends. And it was a bit like when I went to school and uh, they would say, oh, you're his, you know, you're his little sister. So it felt a little bit like that to me, kind of like they were equating me with somebody that I wasn't, with somebody that I knew very well and that I was always going to, you know, relate to. But uh but th that wasn't actually me. And that's really the best way that I can think of to describe it to people is it's like always being compared to, you know, to your brother, to your cousin, to, you know, people in your life. It's it's like always being compared to them. And that can be very frustrating. I, I think that uh, it can be very frustrating first if you don't like them and don't get along with them. But it can also be very frustrating if you do like them uh, and you do think that they're wonderful because, you know, you feel frustrated, you feel jealous, you feel like nobody actually likes you for you. So that was sort of a struggle that that I had, you know, and and I feel like I kind of knew that uh, most actors aren't anywhere near as cool as the characters that they play. <laughs> so. Uh, I, I knew that I knew the truth already. And, uh, and that could be very, very difficult for me. And it's really hard, I think, especially as a child, to figure out who you are when you've spent so much of your life being someone else. How do you feel like you were treated during the time that, and after especially? Um, because after Matilda was wrapped in post-production, your mother passed away. And you talk about that in the book. Yes. And I can't imagine what it would be like as a child. And you're, you write so eloquently about being a child. It's so interesting. But how that that deep backstage is happening simultaneously to you sort of blowing up and doing all of this press. So how are you kind of managing those two, the offstage and the onstage and also this character? Because it's so much at once for for a very young child. I think that I was kind of insulated from it. I also think that I think it's hard for children to be in movies and sort of take a lot of joy from it because, you know, it's not the same as performing in front of an audience. When you perform in front of an audience, you get instant gratification. You get the laughter, you get the applause, you get people crying. When you're making a movie, it's going to be done, you know, a couple months to a year after, you know, you, you first were cast in it or even after you've rapped on it. So that is a long time in a child's life. 
you know, six months, so much can change in six months. And for me, it, it did. So much did change in my life during that time. And I'm kind of glad that I, I was doing that and I was working with that and I was, you know, keeping that going because I think in some ways that distracted me from what was going on in my life. And that's the thing that I think that a lot of people don't realize is that acting can really be a constant in a child's life. And that is, uh, that is something, I mean, I knew a lot of child actors growing up who were, you know, children of addicts or who had moved around a lot or who, you know, had, had struggled a lot, uh, you know, and, and lived in poverty before they became professional child actors. And the acting was, uh, you know, something that kind of kept them going. And it's, it's ironic because acting is, of course, one of the most unstable jobs there ever could be. But uh, I think that it's also a lot more structured. Uh, being on a set is a very, very structured thing. So that provides sort of support and family. And when a, when a film is going well, it, it feels like summer camp. Can you just talk a little bit about your experience on Matilda? I, I had a lot of really positive experiences. And I, I want to make sure that people know that. Uh, and, and I also, on a pragmatic level, I'm, I'm very glad that I was able to, you know, make enough money to go to uh, a boarding school that I really loved an arts boarding school and to go to a college that I wanted to go to. So I, I consider myself very fortunate, uh, in that case. And I think that for me, a lot of the negative aspects of it were, um, the rigidity of it and the perfectionism of it. I, I think that probably the hardest part was that I felt I always had to be a good girl. Because I was told over and over again, don't be a brat, don't be a brat, don't be a brat, don't be a brat. And there was a stereotype that, you know, of child actors being brats. Uh, and I think that's sort of part of the narrative. And in my experience, most child actors aren't. They're not entitled. They're not rude. They're not pushy. Uh, if they are, people don't want to work with them and they don't end up getting cast. A lot of times you will have uh, actors, child actors who are absolutely wonderful. And sometimes their parents are a little pushy. But also parents get called pushy if they advocate for their child's rights. Uh, so that's another thing too. The the idea of the stage parent is uh, is is misunderstood in some ways. I think that we sort of resort to lazy stereotypes about it. But yeah, most children they're they're people pleasers. That's the thing. But the problem with being a people pleaser is you can't you can't speak up for yourself and you can't say no to things. So you end up saying yes to things and then you resent it and you get angry. And I found myself doing that a lot. And I felt like I couldn't make mistakes. So. I also think that, you know, probably being on a film set and, and learning, you know, that you, you want to keep doing it until you get it right, until you do the perfect take, doesn't exactly reinforce the idea that it's okay to make mistakes as a child, which is something necessary that I think all children should learn. I was very afraid of, make, of making mistakes. But I also think it was the media and the public. I mean, I don't, I didn't feel unsafe on film sets because I felt like I was being taken care of. But I, I did feel unsafe talking to people who would twist my words. And I did feel unsafe getting fan letters from full grown men. And, and, you know, I remember my, like my parents, and my family talking about a time that uh, a man just grabbed me and shoved me into picture with his family. And, uh, and I don't even remember that happening because it was just kind of like, yeah, that happened. <laughs> that, that kind of stuff happened all the time. And they were like, that's, that's a horrible thing. Uh, to happen. And it just kind of felt normal to me, I think. So I think that a lot of people will talk about, oh, Hollywood messes kids up. But I, I don't think it's just Hollywood's issue. And there's a lot of things that we can regulate in Hollywood, you know, and I think there does need to be more oversight. But we can't control the way that the media talks about children. And we can't control the way that fans, you know, or people who consider themselves fans treat children. 
So that's something that I feel like, you know, the public and the media need to look at themselves for, especially because Hollywood, Hollywood's whole thing is that it's, it's all about money and it's all about capitalism at, at the end of the day. It's, it's just about making a service for, for people. It's making things for people and they're always going to do what makes them the most money. So Hollywood is not immoral, it's amoral. It's amoral because for them, it's all about the profit and it's all about what sells and it's all about pandering to an audience. So the audience needs to consider their role in it as well. Well, it fits in very well with the whole concept of influencers and and Instagram and all of those things becoming such a huge industry, um, kind of along those same lines. Yeah. Our, our greatest American export. Everything is curated, you know, and, and I think that we're starting to see that more. I think that people are maybe in some ways becoming a bit empathetic to those of us who grew up in the public eye because they know that we had to do that. And ironically, if you ask any director what they want in a child actor, they will say sincerity. They'll say like, I didn't want a child actor, which always makes me roll my eyes because I'm like, yes, you did. And and what they mean is they wanted somebody who they felt like could embody it and be real and not be kind of over the top and and phony. And um, I mean, I think you see that a lot in a lot of like children's uh, television programming. You see a lot of very over the top acting. And that's because if I may get pretentious and, and let's be real, I always want to. Um, it's it's teaching people things. I mean, it's like it's like Brechtian in a way because it's meant to teach people things. So, of course, it's going to be a little over the top and a little this because you're demonstrating something to people. So, you know, Barney and Friends is actually street scene. That's my uh, hot take of the day uh, <laughs> that two people will understand. Uh, uh, thank you for laughing, Miranda. But yeah, like I think that uh, a lot of children's TV shows, there's, it's a little bit over the top, a little bit silly. Commercials as well, because you're demonstrating something, you know, and you're, you're demonstrating how great something is. And, you know, my mom, my mom had, you know, done theater at Northwestern University and she, she would tell me, okay, here's the difference between exaggeration and here's, you know, naturalistic acting. And so she would teach me a little bit. And I had an absolutely wonderful acting coach, uh, John Homa, who I, I, I love to death. I still love him so much. He's he's like my uncle. And actually, there's I think there's like a YouTube video of me on a very famous interview show. And the interviewer asks me, do you know that you're acting? And I just kind of look at them like they're an idiot. <laughs> and I feel bad about that now. But it was like, yeah, of course, I know that I'm acting. I think children in some ways have a better grasp on pretend than adults do because adults forget that they're pretending. And I mean, I forget all the time. I'll have an argument with somebody in my head. And the next time I'll see them, I'll be like, oh, that was just in my head. Whereas kids, you know, they're playing pretend they're, they're playing with, you know, their dolls, they're playing with their, they're playing house, they're playing out in the yard, you know, they're, they're pretending they're, they're fighting aliens or whatever. And then, you know, somebody says, Hey, it's lunchtime. They come in, you know, they're, they're playing, they're playing, you know, Animal Crossing or whatever, and then they go eat lunch and then they come back. Like it, they, they know what pretend is. They know what not real is. So I, I think in some ways that they kind of have a better grasp on that than all of the rest of us do. I agree with that completely. That's actually, I hadn't thought of it like that. And uh, in our episode, we talk a lot about how we're always pretending. And yeah. like you said, we have this sort of myth of authenticity. At least I kind of think it's a myth. Not that you can't be authentic, you know. But yeah. in general, if you're interacting with another person, you're putting on a mask. There's no other way to be a person. It's also ironic to me that a lot of the most sincere people I know are people who put on and, and do so much you know, ridiculous stuff. Like I know I wrote in my book about like, I did a lot of shows with people who did like burlesque and sideshow and, and things like that. And uh, 
you know, that kind of stuff, which is so, you know, silly and out there. And those people I felt tended to be the most authentic. <laughs> and it's because I think there's a conscious choice. You know, there's a conscious choice in in putting putting these things on. And like one of my dearest friends is uh, is a Broadway actor and a, uh, a burlesque MC. And I remember like the, t- the first time the two of us just sat down and talked, it was just like, there was no holding back. And it was just like, oh, wow, we really get each other. <laughs> and it's because we're both we're both very sincere people who uh, who kind of, you know, know how to put on a persona. I'm going to talk to you more about burlesque in a little bit. Oh, yeah. I'm going to we're going <laughs> to talk about it. So, OK. In your New York Times article, uh, which came out. Uh, a few weeks ago now, yeah, uh, kind of on ago. the heels of the of the Free Britney uh, right. documentary and, and popularization of that. Um, and there was just this sort of national conversation all of a sudden about how we treat our young stars, especially girls and young women. And you uh, in your in the article, you dub sort of the idea that anyone who grew up in the public eye will meet some tragic end is how you put it. And that's called the narrative. Um, and the narrative also has the assumption and you kind of touched on this a little bit that famous kids deserve it yeah. because they asked for it. They're famous, entitled, they're brats. So it's totally fine to. To attack them. So yeah, <laughs> you've done a lot to fight against that narrative, um, but it still probably follows you around. Yeah. I mean, I know it does because you talk about it in your book. So can you talk about you, oh, you also talk about this thing called the Matilda horror complex, yeah. which Miranda and I <laughs> got a lot of joy from that Um the word creation that you made there that play on words yeah that was the that was the essay that in my book that i told my dad not to read oh that's good you gotta have boundaries <laughs> and he was like he was like okay it's like well i was gonna skip it yeah. anyway when i saw the I, word whore i was like dad yeah exactly i was like dad there's a there's like a part in here that i might not want you to read and my dad is my dad is is very like laconic and and very just you know precise with his words and he just goes i think i know which one <laughs> Bless him. <laughs> and we, yeah, and we just, we just left it at that. Yeah. Um, that's, that's great. Uh, so, so this thing, the narrative, um, how have you, how's it affected your life and how have you fought against it? And sort of with this thing, like the Matilda Whore complex, where you felt like you kind of needed to stay a little kid forever and never yeah. kind of tarnished the purity of this character. Would you talk about that? I mean, I I feel like, you know, I used to get so annoyed when people would call me Matilda because I would be like, I'm not Matilda, I'm Mara. I would get really pissed off about that. Uh, and and I was, I think, very bitter well into my 20s about it. Now I, I just feel grateful that I had that experience at all and and that I could be, I can embody this this part that, you know, so many people love. Like that just feels like a wonderful privilege to me. But I, I was really messed up about it for a long time because I think I felt a bit resentful. And I really do feel like there is this sort of uh, we, we love to bring these people down. We love to build these people up so we can bring them down. And uh, it, it's this assumption that we're all brats and we all deserve it. And we have to be careful that we're not bad. And bad can mean a lot of things. Bad, I think, in, in many ways, is sort of like you know, showing any kind of sexuality, but also I think when, you know, a teenager, you know, like Britney Spears shows some kind of sexuality, I think that a lot of times they don't really understand the ramifications of it. They don't understand, you know, that it's going to be fantasy fodder for, you know, grown men. They just think that it's fun and it's cute. And uh, they, they can't really understand that they can't really. And that's a thing I think of a lot of child actors and uh, that, that people, they, we don't understand what we're getting ourselves into. 
and I mean, I feel like I kind of became accidentally famous. Uh, and, and I feel like I was sort of unlikely uh, to become famous. But I also think that for a long time, I kind of had this, I'm not like the other girls kind of thing where I would look at the Olsen twins and I would be like, well, I'm not like them because they're very pretty, but they're more like this and they're more like that, or I'm not like them, you know? And, and I also think that that was probably encouraged by the fact that I had to regularly walk into a room with, you know, 20 other girls and think to myself, uh, I have to beat them. (laughs) I have to, I have to, you know, beat them for this part. Uh, So I think that we, we encourage that in people. I think we also especially encourage that in, you know, uh, AFAB people that, you know, if you're feminine, if you're a girl, then you're going to be uh, sort of scrambling for resources. I feel like that that happens a lot. We encourage that sort of mindset in people. I mean, I guess we kind of encourage it across genders, but I do think that there's this sort of idea of not being like the other girls that is kind of insidious. Uh, and, And I think for a long time, you know, people would tell me things like, how did you grow up? Okay. And now I'm like, you know, if people ask me, if people say to me, like, oh, you turned out well, or, or people, some people think that I d- didn't turn out well, depending on, you know, what they think of my values and my politics, I guess. Uh, but the idea of turning out anything is wrong to me because nobody ever gets to a point in their life where they are completely turned out, when they are completely one thing. People continue to grow and change. I mean, you do get to a place where, you know, like, I don't know how many people, and I think this is definitely a generational thing. I don't know how many people I know who actually feel really like adults. And I feel like an adult on some days, but I also feel like even when I do feel like an adult, I, I want to be a better adult. <laughs> I want to, you know, be improving myself. And I don't know, maybe it's because I'm from California and I'm constantly on a self-improvement kick, but I, I, I don't think that anybody ever turns out a certain way. So I also think that there was this point in my life where I needed to prove that I was normal. I needed to prove that I turned out okay. And now I've kind of given up on that because I'm like, well, that's part of the narrative as well, that I'm one of the good ones. And I have so much empathy for people, especially considering the fact that a lot of this is like shaming people for for drug addiction or incarceration, which are rampant in this country. You know, everybody knows somebody who's dealt with that. And I, I do think that the narrative is forced upon us and and kind of stepping away from it altogether is the best idea. You ever notice how finding time and energy to do the most basic human necessity, eat literal food, has become just another exhausting task jammed into our increasingly inhuman schedules? Well, your spring can be a little more stress-free with Factor. Factor will provide you with delicious, never-frozen, ready-to-eat gourmet meals that are chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to eat in just two minutes. Each week, you get to choose from a menu of 35 options to create your perfect breakfast, lunch, or dinner with absolutely no prepping, cooking, or cleaning up. And Factor makes sure you get exactly what you want. You can tailor deliveries to your schedule and customize how many meals you want each and every week, and you can pause anytime. So just head to factormeals.com slash American Hysteria 50 and use code American American Hysteria 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code American Hysteria 50 at factormeals.com slash American Hysteria 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Check out Factor today. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about, but why? 
What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. So you kind of, you sort of took back control a little bit when you wrote your book. And uh, so I think both Miranda and I have been really interested in, in in how that process unfolded and how it was to finally just be able to say your own truth and to um, put it out there to uh, maybe an, an audience that that expected something different out of your book. Um, so what was it like writing it? What was how did you feel after sort of the reception and and what did it do to, for your relationship to yourself and to your own history as a child actor? Well, I always knew that I wanted to be a writer even when I was a child. In fact, the reason that I got into acting was because I liked making up stories and performing them. Uh, so I, I really liked that aspect of it. And I always knew that I wanted to be a writer. That was important to me. The thing was, I was actually writing a couple different books at the time. And I just kind of wanted to see which one would resonate most with people. And I had a feeling that it would probably be this one. Uh, and so I had written this article for Cracked about, uh, and I was writing a lot of, you know, comedy stuff in those days. I was writing for Reductress and people like that. And it was about how, uh, you know, why child stars tend to have breakdowns and because of the pressure that's on them and the experiences that they've had. And um, I think that that was something that uh, was important to me to write about. And you know, I had a couple other drafts of other books that I was interested in publishing, but I thought, okay, I probably need to explain myself first. <laughs> and this is probably what is going to have the most interest. So I, uh, I I started writing that. And it was really interesting because I had a truly, truly wonderful editor, Lindsay Schwari, and and a wonderful book agent, Alyssa Rubin. Uh, so some of them kind of just sprang out of my head, fully formed like Athena. Uh, the, the Matilda Horror Complex was one of those because that was based, that, that was a story and storytelling was, you know, easy for me. But I think that uh, some of them were really hard to write. And I would say that actually the Matilda chapter was probably one of the hardest ones to write just because I was still parsing my feelings. So I was still trying to figure out what exactly it was that I wanted to say about her. And I had a one of my favorite college professors told me, I think you should write a letter to Matilda. And and I did. I, I chose that and I chose that as a framing exercise. But yeah, that probably went more went through more drafts than anything else in my book, because there was so much that I wanted to say. And I just didn't know how to say it all yet. And so I had to keep writing and rewriting. And honestly, I feel like anybody who wants to write a book should write a book because you learn so much from writing a book. So I, I think that it taught me a lot. And it also helped me to make peace with myself. So you're a playwright. 
Mm-hmm. Is that is that how you would define yourself partially? I mean, I, I think I I think I would probably just say writer now because I haven't written a play mm. in a while. But I, I started out writing plays. Do you find that you put a lot of yourself into characters that you write? Yeah, you definitely see that, I think. You know, when I looked at like the, the first play that I ever finished, I looked at all the characters and I was like, oh, these are all different aspects of me. You know, this is this is, this is like the firebrand part of me. This is a skeptical part of me. This is the people pleaser part of me. This is the the rebellious part of me. This is yeah, man. I've always thought of fiction in, in that way of it's like conversations between different parts of yourselves. And it's fiction is a really I don't know. I think it's a really good way to understand yourself. Fiction is way more revealing than nonfiction, I think. Absolutely. Yeah. With nonfiction, you get to kind of pick and choose with with fiction. You don't. And you have the safety. It's like almost like the dramaturgy thing. You have the safety of like, this isn't about me. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Okay. So another part of your book that that I think both Miranda and I found so much value in is the section about mental health. And that is a little, you know, you do that through talking about your relationship to Robin Williams uh, during the filming of Mrs. Doubtfire, which of course is another just outrageously beloved movie by our generation. Um, but there's a particular part that really stuck out to me and has had me thinking all day. And that's your brother asked Robin what allows him to hold his audience so well, which, as we all know, is sort of a trademark of of Robin Williams. And he said, it's very simple, really. It's what you leave in and what you put out. And in the book, you have it sounds like you volleyed with its meaning. And for me personally, if you don't mind what it kind of brought up was the idea of what is off stage, and that is usually struggles with mental health. And oftentimes the people you wouldn't expect are struggling with mental health. We know that that's a cliche by now, but that statement, it's what you leave in and what you put out. Have you gotten any closer to understanding what that means? I mean, I think that it can really mean two things to to me. I think leave in is what do you leave for yourself? And, uh, and what do you put out into the world? But it could also mean what do you leave in your work and what do you consciously choose to put out of your work? And uh, I mean, those, are, those two are, are two slightly different ideas, but I think they're very much the same. Um, I think that for me, growing up in the public eye, uh, I, I kind of feel like now I'm allowed to have secrets. And that's a nice thing. And my secrets are usually like pretty boring things. I don't have anything <laughs> particularly scandalous about me. I don't live in a very exciting life. But I, I've told myself, I'm allowed to keep, you know, this experience to myself. I'm not going to post about this. I'm not going to say where I am. I'm not going to be doing these things. And uh, and that feels really good, you know, or, or I am, but I'm just going to share it with a group chat. You know, I'm just going to share it with family members. I'm just going to share it with my best friend, with a partner, you know, people like that. Like there's, there's little things that I can have. And uh, I think that there's, there's kind of a tendency that I have in my life to sort of make everything into a story. And sometimes it's a story to make sense of things for myself. So it's a story just for myself. And sometimes it's a story uh, to entertain other people. And uh, I, I kind of need to keep in mind that, you know, this is just a tendency that I have and that it's, it's not always um, the way that life actually is. And that uh, some of these stories I can keep to myself. And I think that that's very important too. You, you need to be very conscious about uh, what you do share and what you, what you put out into the world and what you keep to yourself. And that's kind of what I, what I take it to mean these days for myself. That was really beautiful. <laughs> Thank you. That's such a beautiful way to think about it. And I think being a poet for so many years, that's what I went to school for and everything. 
it's almost like you live in those moments almost to turn them into stories. And it's almost like even in your alone moments, there's some part of you that is over here that's out of you looking down saying, well, wouldn't this make a great poem? And I think that that it, getting out of that for myself was really powerful where I could have those intimate sort of like, uh, what would you call it, present moments uh, without thinking about turning it into work. Yeah, I feel like photographers have that as well. And I definitely know journalists who do too. Journalists are always like, I'm going to find the pattern. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. And yeah. uh, I know my father always said that he he gave up on journalism because he he worried that he was looking for the best story at the expense of, you know, something bad happening to people. Like he saw a car accident happen and he wanted to help people. But also he was like, this would make a good story. And he didn't like Oof. that about himself. And he stopped. And obviously that's not the way all journalism is. But I, I definitely think it requires a certain kind of person. And I definitely think that it can take a toll on that person. Yeah, that's that's very well said. Um, something that you have also talked about that related to that chapter uh, with Robin Williams is mental health and your own uh, struggles with mental health. I've also talked about my struggles with mental health on the show. And um, yet, as you said, there are secrets. There is the backstage. And I was just sort of curious about coming out and talking about those things more openly, the things that are supposed to be offstage and how how that felt for you and what the what the reaction was like and uh if that was a more positive experience because i could see it also being negative because it's so loaded and charged and especially after being called a brat and you know not really being encouraged to show emotion was that freeing for you at all yeah you know i mean i'm really glad that i did it and i'm really glad that i didn't do it at a younger age uh i, I think that you know maybe i could have even waited a few years more but i found that being open about it was uh was was really good and was really helpful for me. And so I I really wished that it had been that there had been more people around talking about these things uh, when I was a kid. And it was actually, you know, it was a book about about, you know, OCD that made me realize I had OCD. And so I realized that, you know, maybe I could be that for other people as well. And I have been. I still get messages from people all the time saying, "Oh, you encouraged me to get help." And that is the best feeling in the world because I know, I know the loneliness of, of being alone with your own thoughts and your own illness. So I, I want to share it. But I also do think that there's different levels of sharing. Like I have a friend who, uh, whenever they have a panic attack, they tweet about it. <laughs> and I have friends who uh, have, have, you know, private Instagram accounts where they take their medicines and things like that. But I really don't feel like uh, everybody needs to do that. I feel like everybody should do it to their comfort level. And I also feel like if people don't want to talk about their issues with the public world, that's totally fine. I think that they should, you know, find people around them that they feel comfortable talking uh, about. And, uh, and I do think that it is important to advocate for, you know, mental health reform and such as well. But I think that, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm very grateful that I did it. But there's definitely still a lot of stuff that I'm going to keep to myself. You know, I, I also think like, um, for me, I think that art or curation or, or, or like what is what is like a piece of art or a piece of like work, you know, creative work that you put out there. Um, I, I always feel like it's kind of like uh, it needs to be it's, it's like coffee grounds. They need to be put through a filter. You don't just put coffee grounds in your mouth. At least I don't think that you do. I, I'm a tea drinker. I wouldn't know these things. But uh, yeah, but I think that things need to be filtered a little bit. And I think that that's something also that we're sort of learning with social media now is it, it can make you it can make you vulnerable in a way you don't want to be vulnerable. And I'm definitely all for people being voluntarily vulnerable, but I also think that they need to take care of themselves, too. So do, would you be willing to or interested in talking about how you think 
your mental health was affected by growing up as a child star? I feel like it definitely did exacerbate my perfectionism. It also uh, made me feel like there was an unrealistic standard of beauty that I was never going to live up to. So, uh, you know, those are definitely things that, that, you know, you struggle with. And it's very hard when you are growing up and you are going through puberty and you are feeling sort of alienated from yourself to have a public saying to you, well, you aren't cute anymore, so you are worthless. And, you know, when you're, when you're, you know, 12, 13 and you're feeling ugly to have, you know, legitimate newspapers say you are ugly <laughs> doesn't exactly feel the greatest. So uh, I, I definitely think that that was something that uh, was a struggle for me. And, um, you know, I, I did have imposter syndrome because I always felt like I didn't really deserve the the attention that I got. Uh, and uh, and now I feel like I kind of need to use my platform for for good and for for causes and for amplifying other people's voices. That's very important to me. Um, but yeah, I, I think the idea that you can't make a mistake is is very dangerous. So yeah, that's something that I think about a lot. Uh, is is how it kind of made me into more of a perfectionist and made me not want to. Um, make a mistake. And uh, that I, I felt like there were a lot of things that I couldn't be. Speaking of things you couldn't be, uh, the other thing that, of course, I would love to talk about because we're all so gay and every listener of American Hysteria is gay, whether they know it or not. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding, guys. Um, <laughs> uh, but you came out a few years ago as bisexual. And at the end of your book. Uh, you went to this, you kind of mentioned it earlier, but you went to this queer burlesque show. Um, and it seems like you kind of in that moment, you found something, you found your people. Yeah. And um, I understand that because I was a drag and burlesque performer and we put on a whole production of uh, Riverdale as drag, which was wow. very fun. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I was um, Jughead. And of course you were. It was hot. <laughs> <laughs> it was hot. Um, but uh, basically, that's to say that I do understand that scene. And something that I was thinking about as I was reading this is like, when you are in a burlesque or drag space, even the audience, a lot of the time, a lot of the time are playing characters. And certainly the performers are playing a variety of characters camped up and, and blown up. And, and that's sort of what drag is and burlesque is. And so I was I just immediately was like, man, you found yourself among people playing the most extreme characters and and thinking about our episode on influencers and the dramaturgy and the front facing self and authenticity and all this stuff. You, like you found yourself among an authenticity based through the the persona put forward that isn't real. And so I just think it, it was wonderful that you kind of ended there. And I was curious if you would kind of tell us about finding yourself among characters uh, in this place. Well, I mean, I think that that's kind of where you find the most clear delineation between the self and not the self. And that, I think, is, is you know, very authentic in a way because it's it's nodding at the audience. It's winking at the audience being like, you know that this is a character. You know that this is put on. You know that this isn't real. So I think that that probably attracted to me. Like musical theater has always been a big thing in my life, I think, because I loved both the idea that it was pure spectacle, but also pure sincerity, sort of unadulterated sincerity and purity. And I feel like that makes a lot of people cringe. But I like that about it. I liked that, you know, you you um, you sing because you cannot speak your words anymore. So uh, that's something that I feel like is, you know, is interesting to me is the idea of like, being authentic and expression through uh, 
through spectacle. And I, I also feel like that's a very human endeavor. If you look back on the history of theater, I mean, it's it's religious experiences and it's all about the idea of transcendence. And uh, it's it's transcendence through, you know, being over the top and being very, uh, you know, extreme and having these heightened expressions and that being sort of the true expression of the self. Whereas now I think that um, a lot of us have kind of maybe taken the wrong messages <laughs> from realism and naturalism and, and realism and naturalism in film and uh, have been like, you know, we, we expect things to be sort of, you know, to be real. And we also think that to be real means like to be gritty. And and that's not true. I mean, there's there's just as much, you know, spectacle in a Scorsese movie as there is in a, re- a very realistic movie. And, uh, you know, realism and naturalism, those are artifices of themselves, you know. And, uh, and, and so I think that that's, uh, that's something that has always appealed to me is this sort of nexus of, uh, of, you know, kind of understood agreed upon artificiality and, um, and sincerity and one. And so that's, yeah, I mean, I mean, long story short, I guess I'm a theater kid (laughs) and, um, and yeah, I mean, I, I do also feel like, like, I know that I came out later in life and, um, or not later in life, but in my late twenties and I do feel like probably a a part of that was, uh, because I felt like everybody was watching me. And I already felt like I had all these things in my life that were liabilities that were keeping me from being the perfect, you know, good girl that I was. The fact that I had a mental illness, the fact that, you know, I, I had a messed up extended family, the fact that I, you know, I was I was angry and frustrated a lot of my life. Uh, and I thought to myself, like, oh, well, I can't be I can't be gay, too. You know, I can't like girls, too. That that would just be too much, <laughs> which isn't exactly logical. But that's, you know, that the way that we rationalize things really isn't. And you know, last summer, uh, uh, the documentary that I was in called Showbiz Kids came out, and uh, that was all about child actors, and I highly recommend it. And it's made by Alex Winter, a former child actor himself. Uh, he was in Bill and Ted and Lost Boys and all of these wonderful classic movies. And uh, I-, I remember hearing, you know, Evan Rachel Wood and some other actors say, I feel like it did kind of stop me from exploring my sexuality a little bit. And And I remember thinking to myself, yeah, I feel like that too. Like, I, I feel like if I hadn't been an actor would I have come out sooner? Probably because I wouldn't have felt like everybody was watching me. And I would have just, you know, maybe talked to my friends and family about it. And I would have found people who, who knew and, and loved me and accepted me. But I, I felt like, uh, I felt like the whole world was watching. So I, I was, I was really afraid, especially when I was considering that. Um, and I'm not like a 50, 50 bisexual at all. I definitely swing more towards my own gender, I would say or, or femininity, but I still do consider myself buyer pan, you know, but I, I do feel like I, um, I felt like I always heard that, uh, people who are bisexual wanted attention and I already felt like I wanted attention and was being told all the time that I wanted attention. And I don't think there's anything really wrong with wanting attention. I think most human beings want attention of one kind or another, even if we, we say that we don't, you know, there, there's different kinds of attention that we all need. But I think that I, I internalized that and I thought, oh, well, good girls don't want attention and good girls can't be bisexual and good girls can't be gay and good girls can't be lesbians because especially in the 2000s, I think there was this whole, you know, I kissed a girl kind of thing where it was like, oh, you're clearly just doing this for attention. And I re- remember being so angry when that song came out and not really being able to tell anybody why it pissed me off so much. Uh, <laughs> and it was just because of my own issues. God, I was so mad. Yeah, my own my own issues and my own struggles. And you know, and I think even even Katy Perry is like sorry that she she performed that song now. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, there's this idea that like the worst thing that you can do is want attention. And I I was already told you know that I that I wanted attention too much, and uh, and I was afraid of that. So so yeah, I think about that all the time. 
but at the same time, my my childhood has afforded me so many wonderful opportunities and experiences that uh, I am grateful for. I like that you just fell into the, in my imagination, you like fell into the arms of a drag queen that's just like, no, we all want attention. <laughs> that's like the whole thing about being, you know, in drag. Or, yeah. It's just like, no, I do want attention. Yeah, like, of give course. Give me attention. Of and course. I like that about being drags. I could just be up there. It's like, yes, look at me. Of course. Of course. <laughs> look over here. I'm doing something fun. Yeah. Once I accepted that, I was like, oh, okay, we all want attention and we all want to, to look pretty or look attractive or look interesting and exciting. And once I accepted that, I think that uh, that kind of that, that made me feel better. Well, thank you so much, Mara, for sharing all of this with us, for coming on and for your book and just all of the great things that you've done. Thank you so much. Oh, and uh, just please make sure you check out Mara's book. Uh, it's it's fantastic. And you, too, can cry in the woods. <laughs> uh, it's Where Am I Now? True Stories of Girlhood and Accidental Fame. So thanks again, Mara. And we will definitely have you back someday. Thank you so much. I would love to. This was American Hysteria. Make sure you pick up a copy of Mara's book, Where Am I Now? True Stories of Girlhood and Accidental Fame. And we recommend the audio version because Mara reads it and it's really wonderful. We also recommend her recent opinion piece in the New York Times called The Lies Hollywood Tells About Little Girls that followed the recent documentary about Britney Spears. Next time on the show, you'll be getting part one of our two-part series on horror movies. We have more to offer you if you become a patron of our show, including our bi-weekly podcast, Walk With Me, where I go on a walk in different places and bring you along with me and ramble on about whatever metaphysical, emotional topics that have been bouncing around in the haunted hallways of my convoluted brain. If you like drag and burlesque, we highly recommend getting on Patreon so that you can watch our entire two-hour live show that includes just that, drag, burlesque, skits, song and dance, and special guests, Alex Jones, Tinky Winky, Satan, and John Harvey Kellogg. It's our live variety hour vaudevillian extravaganza. That's patreon.com slash American Hysteria. You can also find the link in our show notes, as well as links to our social media and our website where you can snag up some of our snazzy merch. This episode was produced by Miranda Zickler with sound by Clear Camo Studios. Thanks as always for listening. And we so hope that you get all the flamboyant attention that you need and you deserve. Have a great week.